Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and host of Unmasking a Murder, a podcast about the psychology of true crime. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell series. At the time this aired in May of 2020, the kids had been missing for nine months, and there was a lot of talk and a lot of fear that if something horrible had happened to her children, Lori Vallow might escape justice by pleading insanity. Around this time, there was a lot of talk about her mental state in the months leading up into the missing children. In this episode, we'll take a look at how often other cult members have pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, and we'll explore how the insanity defense might or might not be applicable in this case. everyone. It's Dr. Joni Johnston with episode two of the Lori Vallow, Daybell, and Chad Daybell case. Last week, I talked about religious beliefs and how those compared or contrasted with potential delusions or religious delusions that are associated with some serious mental illness. And I want to thank everybody for taking the time to watch the episode and also just all the really insightful comments and questions I got from you last week. I really appreciated them and they really were heartening to see how much people are really thinking about this case, which is a very, very disturbing case. There are a lot of great YouTube videos and articles about this case that go into a lot of detail about the facts and what we know so far. So as opposed to me trying to just rehash the whole case, I'm going to encourage you to, do, to find those if you're interested in more specific details and to use, like I did last week, to use this case to talk a little bit about the facts, but also then to go into a psychological, I guess, some psychological thinking, I guess, about some of the facts or potential facts that could happen at the, when this case is ultimately resolved. So since last week, just a couple of things have happened. One is that Lori is still in jail in Idaho. She was denied bail again in spite of her attorney's plea that she was in danger because of the coronavirus. So she remains there. There have been some additional emails that have been released that support some of the allegations about the religious beliefs that we talked about last week. There being some talking about demons and people being possessed and becoming zombies. And there was, I guess, a series of emails that came out where Lori had asked Chad in 2018, I believe, to judge the light and dark spirits of her kids, as well as Charles Daybell and her ex-husband, Mr. Ryan, both of whom, of course, are now deceased. Also, what's come out is that Alex Cox, who is Lori's brother, and has been implicated in some criminal activity, and we know shot and killed Charles Vallow, Lori's fourth husband, in July of 2019, under what he claimed was self-defense. His dad and his autopsy reveals that he apparently died of natural causes. He died of multiple pulmonary embolisms. So it just shows, I think, sometimes that when you have a case this complicated, where you have two missing children, a seven-year-old, a 17-year-old, you have two deceased spouses of individuals who married two weeks later. You know, then you have a brother who's implicated in criminal activity who dies. And now, as it turns out, the third husband, 
Joseph Ryan, who died in 2018, is also being investigated. But it can be very easy, I think, to just lump everything together. And I think that to some extent it's understandable and those things should be, you know, at least reviewed. Because remember, this whole case started with the welfare check on two children and has turned into obviously a much bigger issue since then. So Charles Vallow died in Arizona or was killed in Arizona. Tylee, we don't know, the 17-year-old, we don't know where she is. She was last seen on September the 8th in a trip to Yellowstone. And over 90% of Yellowstone National Park is in Wyoming. And then Tammy Daybell, who was Chad Daybell's deceased wife of 30 years, who died in October of 2019, died in Idaho. Now, the reason I'm saying those things is because the insanity plea varies from state to state. It's kind of odd when you think about it, but there's, you know, there's a state in the United States where you could literally be found not guilty by reason of insanity and spend time in a forensic psychiatric hospital for usually a number of years and be released. And then that another state, a person could get the death penalty for that same offense. But that's how it works in the United States. Idaho is a state where there is no NGRI plea. There is no insanity plea. Now, you might be wondering, well, what happens if somebody legitimately commits a crime and they are having, for example, a psychotic break? They're hearing voices that tell, that tell them to do something. They believe they're performing some good or saving somebody else by hurting somebody or doing something criminal. And they legitimately believe that at the time, is there no way that they could get treatment as opposed to punishment? How that's typically handled in Idaho and in states where there's not an NGRI plea is that essentially after the person has been found guilty, then the defense attorney will try to have testimony, maybe have an expert or two talk about this person's mental illness and their treatment and what they believe was going on with this defendant at the time of the crime. And they really are kind of throwing themselves on at the mercy of that judge to take that into account and potentially reduce the sentence. So if, hopefully not, but if, for example, Tammy Daybell was murdered in October of 2019, and if Chad and or Lori Daybell was responsible for that, then they would not be able to plead in GRI in that state. Now, in Arizona, so let's say we know, again, that Charles Vallow was killed by Alex Cox, who is now deceased. However, one of the big myths about the insanity plea is that it's only used in murder cases. So let's say, or for, just for the sake of argument, that Lori is charged with conspiracy to commit murder or some other crime associated with Charles Vallow's death. Could she say, well... Yes, this happened or I was a part of this, but it was because I was insane at the time. In Arizona, they do not have also an NGRI plea, but they do have something called guilty but mentally ill. So the, the, I guess the, the feeling among most Arizonians is that, yes, we understand that it is possible for somebody to be so actively mentally ill that they are unaware that what they're doing is wrong, which typically is one of the criteria that's often needed to meet the insanity standard. It's a legal standard. It's not a psychological standard. Many more people have a mental illness 
than would ever be found legally insane. Because to be found legally insane, even in the states that have it, you don't only have to show that you had a severe mental illness that was very active at the time that you committed the crime, but you have to show that because of this mental illness, you were really unable to understand at the time, either that it was wrong or that you couldn't appreciate that it was wrong. And there's a little bit of a fine distinction between that. So for example, if you you know, went and you mowed down a bunch of people in public and you're standing there with a gun and you're talking about how you're saving the world, it might be easy to convince a jury potentially that you really didn't know it was wrong because you're not making any effort to cover up your crime. You're not making sense when you're talking. You're maybe talking about the fact that, you know, you're God's chosen person and he has commanded you to, to wipe out these people because otherwise the world is going to end. I'm just making some of this up. But let's say, for example, that you did take some steps maybe to get away or to hide your crime. It might be, and this would be a much tougher road to hoe. It might be that you could convince the jury that you didn't think it was wrong. You didn't appreciate the fact that it was wrong, but you were aware that, for example, other people might think that what you were doing was wrong. So it may be that you think that it's not wrong because you have some special knowledge or some special insight, but that other people don't. So that's, that's what I think where in some states they will say either you didn't know, clearly didn't know what was wrong or you, again, couldn't appreciate that what you were doing was wrong. Other people might have thought what you were doing was wrong, but you really, in your heart, thought what you were doing was right. So Arizona does understand that. But what they've said is that still is not going to be a defense in terms of getting off. In other words, if you are found guilty, but not but guilty, but mentally ill, you are going to get more mental health treatment, but you are still going to serve out that, that sentence. And you are also probably going to spend spend that sentence in prison. So we're just going to make sure that you get mental health treatment in prison, but you're going to still serve out your sentence. Wyoming, which is where, again, the vast majority of Yellowstone National Park does have an NGRI plea, but again, it is very narrow. And if there's one thing I think that I want to convey in this video is that it is very, very difficult to meet an insanity standard. You know, there are so many misconceptions about the insanity plea. And I think it's understandable because when you see somebody plead insanity, particularly in a murder case, it tends to get a lot of media attention. And I think because of that, there's this misperception that number one, it's common, which is not. So the, an insanity plea is put forth in less than 1% of all criminal cases. I mean, it's not even tried in well over 99%. And I think the reason for that is because, as I mentioned, it's the, the odds are stacked against you if you put that forward as a defense. And it's often used as a defense, I think, when a person has a serious mental illness and also when the evidence is so compelling against that person that it seems to be the only option. So again, it's very rare that it's used and when it is used in that less than 1%, it's only successful about 25% of the time. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that you might still be concerned about, well, okay, it isn't used that often, but 
it still can be a way to kind of beat the rap. And I guess another thing that I want to clarify is that people in general who successfully plead in GRI do not get a get out of jail free card by any means. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of research that suggests that in many states, particularly if the person is not convicted of murder or a seriously violent crime, that a person who pleads in GRI will spend more time in a forensic psychiatric hospital than they would have spent in jail and sometimes they are in prison and sometimes it's significantly more. So if a person is found in GRI, they are then sent to a secure forensic psychiatric hospital. And I think the average length of stay is almost 10 years. So it, again, it's not just like, okay, we understood this, you're mentally ill, goodbye. So when a person such as myself or a forensic psychologist is called in to evaluate a defendant in an insanity plea, we are going to be looking at how that person was functioning at the time of the crime. So it's difficult because it's basically trying to say, okay, I'm trying to find a crystal ball that doesn't predict the future, but kind of helps me understand the past. So I'm going to be looking at things like, and this is very important, I think, in this particular case, did this person have a history of a mental illness? You might imagine that as a forensic psychologist, I understand that a person whose life might be on the line, they have a lot to gain um, by putting forth an insanity plea. So I'm not just going to be taking that person's word for it. And it would be very unusual for somebody's mental illness to suddenly just spring up in the context of a crime. And as a matter of fact, when you look at people who have successfully pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, well over 90% of them have a well-documented pre-existing history of a serious mental illness. They've often been hospitalized multiple times. They've often been received a psychotic diagnosis such as schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia um, or bipolar disorder long before the criminal activity took place. And again, that kind of makes sense. And you can also see that jurors who are pretty, pretty smart also want to see that, hey, if you're telling me that this person was so mentally ill at the time that they did not understand what they were doing, essentially, or that it was wrong, I'm expecting to see a history of severe mental illness before this crime took place. So it's, I think, often misunderstood. So in, in this particular case, we have no indication at this point that Lori Vallow or Chad Daybell has any pre-existing history of a severe mental illness. Now, the other, I think, common misconception about the insanity defense is that it's often faked. In other words, if you have a clever defendant, that person can pretty much figure out how to fake mental illness. Now, I certainly can't tell you that's never happened, but people oftentimes are not as clever as they think. There was a serial killer, Ken Bianchi, who was known as, known as one of the two a pair of serial killers who worked together. Ken Bianchi was one of the Hillside Stranglers. And after he was arrested, and of course, there was overwhelming evidence against him. He attempted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And his defense was that he had multiple personality disorder. And he developed essentially an alter ego that he said committed these murders. And he did, in fact, 
I'm somewhat sad to say, convinced a couple of mental health professionals that he did have multiple, multiple personality disorder. But the prosecutors, of course, were wanting to make sure this was the case and not and very skeptical that this was the case, particularly given the fact that it would just be almost unheard of to have two people who are working together as a team to kidnap, rape, and murder young women, and one of them be psychotic at the time. However, so the psychiatrist started evaluating Mr. Bianchi, and Mr. Bianchi, again, was kind of talking about his, his alter ego, and I think his name was Steve, he said, and would, you know, switch voices and switch personas and stuff in the interview. And the psychiatrist at one point said something to, to the effect that, you know, I've never heard of anybody with MPD or multiple personality disorder, which, which is what it was called at the time. It's no longer called that. I've never heard of, of, of somebody with MPD just having two personalities. That just, that just doesn't seem to fit to me. And so lo and behold, the next time that Mr. Bianchi was interviewed, guess what? <laughs> A third altar emerged. And so the the psychiatrist confronted Kim Bianchi and he ultimately admitted that he certainly did not have a dissociative disorder or MPD, what it was called at the time. And he was begging and attempting to kind of help himself out there. So again, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I am saying that it's very, very difficult. First of all, it's very, very difficult to legitimately plead in GRI. And to fake it, I think, is, is even harder. I'll, I'll give you an example of a couple of cases I've seen. And, and what's interesting is that in neither of these cases did the person attempt to plead uh, in GRI, even though I think, in fact, they, they really had a legitimate um, reason to. One was a really tragic case I saw several years ago, and I'm going to change some of the facts just to protect confidentiality, although nobody would ever recognize I think, either one of these cases. But it was a case of, of a man who, over a period of time, over weeks, really began experiencing some severe mental health problems. He began having a lot of difficulty sleeping. He stayed up days at a time. He had this burst of energy. He began believing that he was receiving these electronic messages through the telephone wires and his family and friends noticed that he was acting very strangely. There wasn't any substance use here, which is something, of course, as a forensic psychologist, I'd always want to be exploring um, that possibility. There wasn't any indication of that. But he became very, very religious and, and religious in a way that he was reading the Bible for hours and hours and hours at a time. This went on over a couple of weeks. He began to believe he was receiving these special messages from the Bible. And he had gone through an episode like that a few years before that and had been diagnosed with a bipolar disorder, a manic episode at that time. And he took medication for a little bit of time and then kind of convinced himself that he felt so much better he didn't need it, which is one of the challenges, I think, is sometimes some of the medications can be difficult and the side effects are unpleasant. And so it becomes easy, I think, sometimes for people to feel like, hey, I'm feeling so much better. I don't need my medication anymore without always realizing that sometimes you're feeling better because you're taking medication. But he, anyway, he went off his medication and for a couple of years he did fine, but he had some life stress. He had a, a move, a breakup, and he again, began exhibiting these very odd signs. He 
spent a couple of days out in the woods. He wasn't eating. And this was well documented. I mean, several people saw him. Again, friends, family tried to get him to get some help. He thought he was fine. And he had a four-year-old son and he became convinced that he, he, he was like Abraham. And for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, at one point, Abraham is tested by God who tells him to sacrifice his son to show his love for him. And so this particular um, person began to believe that he was also being called um, for a test of his faith. And his son was four at the time. And so he begins to gather all these candles, gather these lights. He drives his son and his son's mom. They all go to this graveyard. He sets all these candles up. He has a knife and he is planning to essentially, and he's crying and he's praying. And of course his son doesn't know what's going on. And his son's mom doesn't know what's going on, but she's getting pretty scared, understandably. Fortunately, she starts realizing that he is preparing to essentially sacrifice his son. She screams. People are around there. They intervene. Nobody is seriously hurt. He is charged with attempted murder because he does tie this little boy up and, you know, there's make some statements, et cetera, et cetera. And he gets a fairly long prison sentence. And so, and the really, so again, there's a relatively happy ending to the story. So the little boy is fine, although we can only imagine how traumatized he, he was, but he was physically fine. What's interesting is that when I saw this gentleman in, in prison, he was in a crisis unit. And when he had gotten back on his medication and realized what he had almost done, he was just devastated by this and had attempted suicide and was extremely suicidal. And this was a year after this had happened. He had you know, gone to prison and he still just could not forget himself and his, you know, his son and his son's mom would have nothing to do with him, which of course is certainly understandable under the conditions. But so he was now in this process of having to deal with what he had almost done and also grieving the loss of his, you know, his son. I mean, who knows what will happen in the future. So there's a situation, I think, where, you know, legitimately, we could argue that this person truly did not understand that what he was doing was wrong. And almost killed the person he probably loved most in the world for that. Another case I saw was right after 9-11. And it was another young man who had a history. He had a previous diagnosis of schizophrenia and he had been, unfortunately he was taking medication, but he was somebody who for whatever reason they had not found a good medication for him or the right dose of his medication because he was still experiencing pretty significant symptoms, but he was you know, he was continuing his treatment. He was going to see a therapist. He was continuing his medication, but he was really still having these symptoms. And one day he was driving down the highway, heading downtown San Diego, and he happened to be to look over and there was a person driving a car and this person was wearing some kind of head covering. And in the space of a couple of minutes, this young man believed that he 
Well, he heard he was having auditory hallucinations. He heard this voice telling him that this person who was driving next to him was on his way to the San Diego airport where he was going to plant bombs on this, on planes and blow up, you know, kind of have another 9-11 in, in other cities. And so this person doesn't know what to do when he's praying and he's driving on the road and he ends up running this person off the road. And when this person stops and of course has no idea and is terrified as to what's going on, he ends up ramming his car into this person's car. Now, again, luckily there are tons of witnesses. That's the other thing. This young man who is ramming his car genuinely believes that he is being a hero at the time. He makes no attempt to hide anything. There are tons of witnesses, people driving by, people eventually pull over and, you know, several people call 911 and they come and they get him. And at the time he is literally explaining to the police officers that if they don't let him or if they don't now, he's you know telling the police, you need to get this person because if you don't, he's going to go down to the airport. And if I hadn't damaged his car to the extent that I did, he would already be almost there. And what would have happened then? And so, again, this is an individual. Unfortunately, in this case, the prosecutor and the defense attorney really were on the same page. Both of them understood that this individual really was actively psychotic at the time. And the, the victim in the situation, who I can only imagine how terrified he was, was actually was amazingly understanding in a way of what had happened and, and relatively forgiving. Although, of course, charges are not dependent upon what the victim says or what the victim wants necessarily. But they, ended, they all ended up working together. And this particular person, I think, did did do some jail time, but avoided a lengthy prison sentence and was able to get on a good dose of medication and was doing very, very well. So I share those stories with you to show that there really are situations. And I also want to say that they're relatively rare because hopefully I have not communicated to you that most people with serious mental illnesses are violent because we know there is overwhelming research to suggest that people with serious mental illnesses are not violent in general at all. As a matter of fact, they're more, much more likely to be violent towards themselves than they are to anyone else. But there are relatively narrow symptoms, such as command auditory hallucinations, when somebody feels like they're hearing voices or hearing commands telling them to do something. Paranoia. There are some symptoms that increase the likelihood that if they're not controlled, they can lead to some kind of violent behavior. Now, looking back at where we started, which was the Lori Vallow and Chad Daypel story, you know, there's all different possibilities here. And again, depending upon what state, depending upon what evidence comes out, depending upon what charges, there will be a lot of different decisions to be made. But I do think the fact that there doesn't seem to be any pre-existing mental health condition that we've seen for Chad Daybell or for Lori Vallow Daybell certainly does not argue in their favor in terms of pursuing an insanity defense should they ever need to make a plea, you know, of guilty or not guilty or whatever. So I think that we will wait, obviously, and see the outcome of this case. I think we're all hoping again, for a happier, a relatively happy resolution. We don't know what's going to happen with Tammy Daybell's case. Uh, her case, she's Chad Daybell's 
wife who died in October of 2019. Initially, her death was ruled natural causes, and I know that they're now investigating that case. And the autopsy results have not been released, and local police have said it could take up to a year for that autopsy to be, to be you know, completed and, and to be released. So there's obviously a lot of things that we don't know, but I think we, you know, we definitely can say that there's a lot of, a lot of mysteries that we're hoping to be resolved moving forward. I do not think though that we will see any NGRI plea in this particular case. There was a, a I do want to mention one other thing because I think it's kind of interesting because when you think about somebody who might commit a criminal act because of religious beliefs, extreme religious beliefs, you might think that in a way this would be a good defense. And in 2016, these researchers looked at cults and looked at cult-related murders, went back and tried to look at all the legal cases and kind of go, okay, of all the murder cases, how many of these murder cases involved a cult, either a cult leader who has commanded a follower to kill somebody, or maybe the cult leader has killed somebody, him or herself, or just because of the religious belief, somebody got killed. And they found 398 cases of cult-related murders. And then the question became, okay, of what percentage of those cases did the defendant plead not guilty by reason of insanity? And there were only eight cases that were identified. And it's interesting because, you know, the first thing that came to mind for me was the Charles Manson case, of course, back in the 1970s, Charles Manson and his family and the horrible murders that happened because of his commands and his teachings. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Charles Manson really controlled his family's lives. He gave them multiple and massive amounts of LSD and kind of terrorized them. And you might think, again, why wouldn't one of his followers at least attempt uh, an NGRI plea? And yet nobody did. And I think what that, what that attests to is the fact that oftentimes defendants who are involved in a cult-related murder are oftentimes still so enmeshed and so entrapped by the, those beliefs that even in a, as a defendant in a criminal trial, they are not willing to say I was mentally ill. They're still involved, you know, mentally and psychologically, they're still kind of embedded in that cult. So, but anyway, they found eight cases that in which either the cult leader or a cult follower committed murder and then said, well, now I realize that I was mentally ill at the time and I didn't appreciate that. And to date, not a single one of those cases has resulted in a favorable verdict for the defendant. So juries, as you might imagine, we said last, as I said last week, juries tend to feel like even if religious beliefs are extreme, unusual, bizarre, incomprehensible, juries tend to kind of go, okay, those are a choice. It's a choice to, to, to adopt those beliefs, the choice to be involved in that group. And so they don't tend to think somebody has any kind of a, a pass for committing any kind of criminal act as part of a cult. No matter, even though we, we know as psychologists that there's a tremendous amount of coercion and mind control that can happen when people are isolated geographically, particularly, and are involved in a cult. So there's a lot, I think, to continue with this case. And again, let's all hope for a relatively 
favorable outcome, but I don't think it will involve an insanity plea. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for commenting. And I will see you next time.